Hello, I'm Kathy Fang with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. This time on Below the Radar, host Amda Hall speaks with Julieta Singh, author and associate professor of English and of Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at the University of Richmond. In this episode, Am asks her about her latest book, The Breaks, a work of epistolary nonfiction in the form of a letter to her daughter. This interview was recorded prior to its release, but The Breaks is out now, available from Coffeehouse Press and Daunt Books Originals. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, welcome to Below the Radar. Delighted that you could join us again this week. Uh, We're really excited to have Dr. Julieta Singh with us from the University of Richmond. Welcome, Julieta. Thank you so much. It's been really wonderful to encounter your work the last couple of months. I was doing a bunch of reading with my collaborator on a writing project on friendship and community, and your name came up in various writers that we were beginning to read. And so it's been wonderful to sort of jump down the the rabbit hole and uh, wondering if you can sort of begin with just introducing yourself a little bit. Sure. I'm really happy to be identified as somebody to think about in relation to friendship and community. So I feel very honored by that. I'll start by saying that. So I am a Canadian person. I grew up in Winnipeg to diasporic parents, both immigrant. And I moved to the U.S. for university to do my Ph.D. and somehow ended up staying here. So I work at the University of Richmond in Virginia on Powhatan land. I teach across queer studies, post-colonial studies, and what is broadly referred to as the ecological humanities. And I'm both an academic and a nonfiction writer. I have a new rescue dog in my midst here with us today. And I also have a nine-year-old kid. Did I miss anything? Are there any important details I've missed out? We'll probably get to it. (laughs) More will be revealed as time passes. Julieta, so the first book of yours that I encountered, uh, maybe we can begin there a little bit. It's from 2018 from Duke University Press, Unthinking Mastery, Dehumanism, and Decolonial Entanglements. And I'm wondering if uh, you could talk a little bit about where that project began from you, sort of the premise of the book that began and and turned into the the book itself. Yeah, it started in my PhD work, not as my dissertation project, but as a kind of irksome phenomenon that I was identifying as a student where I was reading a lot of anti-colonial discourse of the early and mid 20th centuries. And I was noticing a kind of preoccupation in that discourse with a renunciation of mastery So a kind of diagnosis of the colonial relation as being a relation of mastery between masters and slaves. And obviously in anti-colonial discourse, a series of prescriptions or desired political movements to undo that relation. And I kept noticing that in anybody who I'd encounter, the sort of great thinkers of the anti-colonial moments of the 20th century, like Gandhi, like Franz Fanon, were kind of key figures in in that book, that while they renounced colonial mastery, they kept returning to mastery as the antidote to it. So for Gandhi, very famously, one becomes a self-master. Mastery over oneself becomes the way to fight colonial mastery. And for someone like Fanon, a moment of temporal mastery 
where you literally tear down the conditions of your oppression and throw out your masters in a moment of of physical and violent revolution in order to create a more equitable future. And I was haunted by the ways that mastery seemed to both be the problem and overwhelmingly the solution. At the same time as I was studying comparative literature for my PhD and noticing that all the greats of the scholarship of that time, of that era, were also calling for ever more mastery over our fields, over area studies, over our our knowledge production. And I felt really uneasy about it as somebody who understood myself physically, psychologically, temperamentally, totally unable to be masterful, even while I understood that I desired it. And so I think the project really set off by way of a suspicion I had or a curiosity I had about the discourses I was studying and about this kind of key phenomenon that was both the problem and the solution to the legacies of colonization. And you're bringing a lens as well from feminist and queer studies into decolonial frameworks, and it's a fascinating entanglement. And I'm wondering if you could sort of parse through some of Fanon's approach and Gandhi's approach in terms of how you look at it in the book. Mm -hmm. I'm a real, I don't think I use this term in the book. I definitely use it in the breaks and have used it often in public discussion and teaching and, and learning beyond my writing, but I'm really invested in the notion of indebted critique. And so while I come at everything that I read and everything that I do from a feminist and queer perspective, I'm also really invested in the kinds of legacies that we've inherited that we can't do without. And I I think of Gandhi and Fennel for all of their problems, (laughs) for all of their patriarchy, for all of their inability to kind of think things like gender and sexuality and disability, uh, and even in some ways ecology in ways that I find necessary in this moment. I still have learned a lot from them and take a lot from them. And so it's very easy to to renounce Gandhi. It's very easy to say Gandhi's politics were, am I allowed to swear in this podcast? For sure, for sure. Okay, so Gandhi's politics were very fucked up and a lot of incredible scholarship has revealed that. And the same can be said for Fennel. They were obviously very much products of their cultures and their times, even while they were trying to think more capaciously beyond the limits of those times. But you know, any time you're looking back at those revolutionary archives that are patriarchal, that come from masculine leaders of the past, it's something you always have to encounter. And I think instead of throwing them out, I really wanted to see what could happen in the present moment with them, with the kind of kernel of what they were doing, if we extended what they were doing rather than to shut it down. Now, in the book, you also sort of uh, work through other thinkers like uh, Judith Butler, Agamben, Mabembe. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what in their work you found interesting to think through. Mm -hmm. With Butler, I was really leaning on their formulation of vulnerability and trying to think for myself about what it would mean to produce a kind of scholarship that in working against mastery, and working against the legacies of mastery could also be vulnerable, not just at the level of like, what would intellectual vulnerability be? What would it mean to read vulnerably? And what would it mean to write vulnerably? And Butler's written so beautifully and expansively about that term. And so I really 
took from them a kind of political call for vulnerability to try to think about what it would look like in my own thinking and to a certain extent in unthinking mastery also in my own life, which I write more explicitly and in detail about in, in my other books, in my later books. But for Butler, I think it was really vulnerability that was key. And for the others, you know, I was kind of mining. I hate that term, but I think it's true as a graduate student that I was really kind of going through and looking at the most important figures that I had been trained to look at, to look for, to see the ways in which their post-colonial preoccupations kept returning us to things like the need for language mastery, whether that's about learning native languages or mastering native languages or mastering the languages of one's masters in order to kind of overcome them. And so I think those other sort of key post-colonial figures were figures who became really instrumental to me for everything that they taught me about post-colonial life, post-colonial politics, what's sometimes called the post-colonial condition, but also to see in them some absences or some repetitions, some inheritances really that hadn't been challenged, like that very core question of mastery. I think of mastery as an inheritance that all of us have, have been bestowed that really needs to be critically rethought at the end of the world in these apocalyptic times that we're living through now. It's not mastery that saves us. It's other forms of world relation. There's a, so many wonderful passages in the book, and it's really wonderfully written. There's one in the middle of the book where I'm going to quote, I've got it written down here. We live because we have deposited energy and matter into the world and because forces well beyond what we can see or hear or touch have embedded themselves in us and have enabled and sustained our existences. The impossible historical inventory to which we might aspire includes those ecological and material entities that underlie our individual and collective forms of being. There's a part in the later chapters where you're getting into ecological questions, questions of the animal. I'm wondering if you can speak to that a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the way that I, I struggled with how to organize that book, you know, it was my first big book and the puzzle of how to put it together felt very overwhelming. And I ended up doing something that I probably wouldn't do now, but made very logical sense and I think still does, which is to kind of put up front the critique and engagement with figures like Gandhi and Fanon at the top half of the book, to think about that anti-colonial revolutionary moment filled with promise. And then on the back half of the book, look at post-colonial writers and to engage with post-colonial writers through mostly fiction and also plays and to engage with the ways that they teach us very much that our ways of being human are always kind of fantastically attached to a notion of mastery, but also that are very fundamentally ambivalent in our, in our cores, in our political cores. And so I wanted to explore that kind of waffling in the post-colonial moment that kind of upsets the colonial inheritances that we've been bestowed. And to do that, in the second half of the book, I started for the first time as an academic writing myself into that work. And so in each of the, the back half chapters, there are little scenes in which I'm writing about the animal, the political question of the animal in post-colonial studies, but also trying to inquire over my own animal relations, human-animal relations, and also with my kind of attachments 
to a humanitarian ethics that also needs to be critically rethought and critically undone. So it was a way of kind of placing myself into those scenes, not just from on high as an intellectual, but as somebody whose life is very much wrapped up in those systems and those ways of thinking, even while I'm trying to think against them. I know in encountering your work, I was reading at the time some of the work of Jasbir Puar, Leela Gandhi, Claire Colebrook, and others, some of whom cited you as, as well. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about in your work, I, I find there's a kind of a return to the body as a site of political agency that's functioning within a context and in a historical context. And despite all the problems with it, it's still a, a place of possibility. Yeah. You know, I published this book called No Archive Will Restore You in 2018, in the same year that Unthinking Mastery came out. And one of the first questions that I was asked about it is, isn't your attachment to the body or isn't your kind of commitment to the body or your engagement with the body a way of reaffirming a kind of problem that we're trying to exceed? So this feminist interviewer was understanding the body as a kind of limit or a trap that we needed to exceed as feminist scholars, given how reductive the female body has been made to be over time. And I was really surprised <laughs> by the question. It made perfect sense to me when she asked, but it's it's kind of misses the point, which is to say that I'm interested in a thinking of the body that exceeds gender and sexuality and race. And it's so interesting to think about the body in these pandemic times, because it's a moment where we can no longer in any way deny that our bodies are radically entangled with one another. And my thinking of the body is a thinking of the body that doesn't want to disavow it because of patriarchy and because of racism, but wants to see it as a absolutely inextricable from any kind of thinking. Like the body is as is, is part and parcel of our thinking and our being and our revolutionary action, etc. But also because the body is part of our way of being earthly. I mean, there kind of isn't an earthly being without the body. And I'm interested in the potentials of the body as a site of ecology, as a site of struggle, as a site of pain, but also as a site of commitment that we make with one another and towards one another. So the body for me has been really instrumental. And, and there's a moment in my new book where I kind of tongue in cheek say, you know, I really wanted to write a book that wasn't about the body at all, <laughs> which is very hilarious and stupid when you think about it, because the book is a letter to my child. And there's kind of no, <laughs> there's like no mother without the body, you know, but I was tired of the body after all the no archive embodiment, because I described the book as a kind of body archive. And if we can call the book a body archive, I think I was kind of through with, with it and then realized while I was writing the new book, The Breaks, this letter to my daughter that the body, our bodies are so vital and instrumental and there's no part of me that wants to, to disavow it. I want to understand it differently. I want to work with it differently. I want to be in my body and with your body differently, but I don't want to do away with it. It's very cyborg-y, <laughs> that idea to me. As a non-techie person, <laughs> I can't quite go there. In, in your book, uh, No Archive Will Restore You from that wonderful publisher, Punctum Books. Thanks for the shout out to Punctum. I love Punctum. Yeah, yeah. I just, I really, I love what they're doing. 
you start with a Gramsci quote, the starting point of critical elaboration is the consciousness of what one really is and is knowing thyself as a product of the historical processes to date, which has deposited in you an infinity of traces without leaving an inventory. Therefore, it is at the outset to compile such an inventory. It's a very personal book as well. You, you're very comfortable weaving in your own personal stories in each of your work, in fact. And I'm wondering if you can speak to the quote and the sort of beginning point of that project and also the importance to your own mode of work and theoretical process to weave in the personal in the way that you do from, you know, talking about your your child, your relationships, the death of your father, brain surgery. You know, there's like so many examples where you talk about intimate personal parts of your, your life as part of thinking through theoretically the project and the questions that you're trying to get to. Mm-hmm. Um, I need to just say brain surgery. Neurosurgery always gets collapsed with brain surgery, but I haven't had brain surgery. <laughs> but this is a common confusion. I went there because I, I actually had brain surgery two and a half years ago, but we could oh, talk okay. about that off. Yes, let's yeah. talk let's talk <laughs> neurosurgery and the brain for sure. Um so yeah, I think you know, often I'm asked about as a writer who uses myself in my life. I always say, I don't think there's anything especially interesting or important about me in any way. And that's kind of the point. So I'm not a person who writes autobiographically because I think that I live an exceptional life or exceptional things happen to me. Maybe maybe sometimes they do, but in the same way that they <laughs> exceptional things happen to all of us sometimes, right? For better and for worse. But I I think it became really important to me through that kind of attempt and unthinking mastery to work myself in to think about what it would mean to make oneself more vulnerable, not in terms of sheer expose, (laughs) but in terms of a kind of careful curation of ideas or problems that I wanted to think through, or I wanted to work out and understanding that there's kind of nowhere better to work those things out than in the intimate details of one's own everyday life. You know, and I I think for the most part, I think especially in the breaks, I write about myself through a series of what I consider to be my failings, you know, my desire for another world and my failures to manifest that world. And I think the intimacy of that, of that personal writing to me feels really important to get at the heart of things. And I, I never write what I already know. I write what I want to learn or what I want to understand. And in doing that, it seems totally organic to me to use myself or to use scenes from everyday life in order to amplify much bigger, greater political, ecological crises that we're facing. And so the kind of insertion of myself always feels like People often think I'm like telling so much about myself and I never feel that way. I feel like I'm carefully curating (laughs) as a writer, a series of scenes and episodes that are real, but are that in no sense exhaustive, but are selected are curated precisely because they help me to amplify something that I'm trying to think through or that I'm trying to express. Then you asked me another question. I guess uh, in terms of the stakes of the book, the quote from Gramsci was kind of a, a beginning point in terms of uh, what were you trying to do with that book? 
okay, I love that Gramsci quote and I was kind of obsessed with it. And I open No Archive Will Restore You with a scene in which I'm in grad school and the heat is out in my very tiny studio apartment. And I'm trying to read Orientalism and learning Said for the first time in a really concrete way and stumbling on this quote by Gramsci that I totally didn't understand, but that I really loved. And I really, as a teacher, I love those moments. I love to tell my students about those moments where you read things and you're like, I don't know what the fuck this means, but I know it's amazing. (laughs) And I really want to think through it and I'm going to return to it over and over again over time and understand it differently at different moments of my life and at different moments of my education. And that Gramsci quote for me was one that really stayed with me. And, you know, it's wordy. It's a wordy quote, but the spirit of it is in order to be ethical and political subjects, we have to understand ourselves as beings who are comprised of an incredible historical inventory that we can never know in full, but that we have an ethical obligation to undertake anyway. So it's an impossible archive that one needs to understand oneself in order to be very conscious and clear about what one's doing in the world. And I took that summons and I shifted it to a kind of queer and feminist inquiry about the body because I was really interested in the ways in which we're trained and socialized as particularly gendered, particularly raced, particularly cultured individuals who disavow a lot of the aspects of our everyday life and who are trained to think about ourselves as totally contained subjects who aren't always being infiltrated from the outside and also infiltrating others. And so it's really an exploration of that, of trying to think about all of the things we're not supposed to talk about, like sex, like shitting, like any anything that is meant to be private and that has to do instrumentally with the body, but also to think about what it would mean to undo my own ideas of the body and my own training of myself as a kind of aspiring masterful subject and to really embrace another orientation and another way of being. I'm wondering, it's a long road for a young person from Winnipeg to land in the Northeast at a university. I'm wondering if you can talk about your, your a little bit of your upbringing in Winnipeg and your your road to academic life in some sense. This is fascinating as a brown kid from rural BC. This is also super interesting, I think, in terms of you know how you found yourself in the way that you did and the questions you're trying to in- inhabit. Do you want to know a secret? <laughs> yeah. I was a high school dropout from Winnipeg and I had a really amazing guidance counselor who was so, so kind to me. And I spent most of high school in his office I left home very young at 15 and was like crashing with friends and their families. And I stopped going to school at some point and I didn't take any math and science, which really still shows in my life after like 10th grade. And he was incredible and was like, look, you're a super awesome kid who's going through a really hard time and I'm going to give you a break. And the break was, I'm going to get you to like study some stuff on the side. So he gave me this like big, huge biology textbook and had me study the biology textbook, which I didn't understand at all. And I'm sure I got a 5% on that exam, but he still passed me with a C. So he basically gave me all the grades I needed at the base minimum to get myself later into the University of Winnipeg. And so I started undergrad at 17 
at the University of Winnipeg. And I was at that point living in my sister's basement in a very disgusting place that I still really palpably remember the smell of and never want to smell it again. And I failed out completely because I had no study skills and hadn't completed high school properly. And then I left and I went into radio broadcasting and I signed up in expensive community college radio broadcasting program that was me and 16 guys from like small town Manitoba who wanted to be like classic rock DJs. And I was like, I'm going to be a journalist and I'm going to change the world. And I got an internship at CJOB Radio in, in Winnipeg. And I had a really interesting, so I was 18, I guess, at the time, or 19. And I had a really interesting crisis because I was confident in my disposition, but I understood that I didn't know very much. And I was going off to like City Hall to report on budget day or covering really gruesome murders and I understood that I didn't have the education to do it ethically. And I was doing it and I was pulling it off and nobody was questioning me, but I shouldn't have been doing it. And I understood it. And so I stopped doing that. I also worked overnights for like a year at the, you know, running the overnight show. <laughs> like it was a, it was a terrible job. And I would get really angry calls because I had to do the sports reporting and I would say, Spokane, Washington. And then people would call and tell me that I didn't know anything. And I did, I should have had no, you know, <laughs> eligibility to be doing the sports on radio. So anyway, I quit that. And eventually I went back to school and I basically rolled into the, the office of the chair of English. And I was probably 21 at the time. And I said, here's the situation. I'm going to be a Canadian literature major and I need to take introductory classes and advanced classes at the same time. And I just came in a little older and a little more committed and clear and nailed it. And then I went and did a, an MA at McMaster to study with Susie O'Brien because I was a very budding eco-critical person, can-lit eco-critical person. And then my professors at Mac were like, you should go to the U.S. And the logic was you should go to the U.S. because if you go to the U.S., you're going to be golden upon return and you can get any job you want in Canada. And it never happened. I just finished my PhD and there were no jobs in Canada and the, the job market had collapsed and I ended up here and just never left. <laughs> oh, fascinating. But I'm secretly plotting a return. Um, so oh, just, okay. well, <laughs> just well, know, we, we... let Canada know. <laughs> well, you need to come visit us in Vancouver for sure. I would love to. So you have a, a new book that just came out this year. Or it's just about to. It's just about to in six days. In six days. It's oh about my God, to drop. The timeliness, the timeliness. Yep. So, so why don't you share with us sort of where this project began from? These are stories for your daughter and, and definitely are in the context of climate change and climate justice. But if you could share about what this work was about. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for giving me a little shout out for that <laughs> imminent release. It's coming out with Coach House Books in Canada and Coffee House Press in the US on the same day. So next next Tuesday. And the book was something that I had been wanting to write for a long time. But I had these other books that I was working on. And I, I think I, I really love the epistolary form. I really love the letter form. And I was really inspired by some of what I call the Black paternal epistolary. So people like Ta-Nehisi Coates's Between the World and Me, James Baldwin's letter to his nephew were really important to me. 
but also about black men and black boys tipping into manhood. And I wanted to think about a letter to my daughter that would help her to understand the complexities of the present and the absences of the world that we're living in. So in the United States, I write extensively about the ways that this country really lacks any kind of nuanced understanding of brownness. It's a nation that's very polarized given the the history of slavery between a kind of national narrative discourse that's about blackness and whiteness. And it, it doesn't yet fully understand how to articulate brownness, whether through indigeneity, first brownness, or through immigrant brownness. And I wanted her to understand growing up in the South, you know, she was born here in Richmond, Virginia, and was asking me in her early education questions that were really complicated about where she stood or where she was positioned in this education system that's so geared around a kind of black and white history. And so I wrote the book in part with a kind of urgency in the aftermath of Trump's election in 2016 and the world that we were living in that continued up until the the book was acquired and, and I was doing final revisions in the pandemic that really felt catastrophic. And I couldn't help but to think that the argument of the book, if the book can be said to have an argument, is that we've tended to and very much been taught to think about reproduction as a kind of reproduction of the same, but a little bit better. So if you have kids, you have kids that you hope are going to be like you, but a little bit better off financially or psychologically or what have you. And I wanted to imagine a kind of reproduction that is a inherently pedagogical to think about parenting as pedagogy and also to think about what it would mean to think about a pedagogical parenting that wasn't about reproducing me at all, but was geared toward my own undoing and toward the production of something totally other given how inextricably bound our lives are to extractive capitalism and systemic racism and so it's a kind of experimental book insofar as it's a, it's kind of structured around a series of conversations and moments and questions between my daughter and myself in which I'm trying to think through the limits of my politics and the possibilities of teaching her something else, something that's not me. And also in that teaching, learning how to undo myself and learning how to kind of mobilize with her for a, a future that we can survive. Sounds amazing. And it was wonderful to to read through it the last few days. I'm wondering if you'd be willing to read from it. I'd be really happy to. Do you have a, do you want me to just start at the beginning or do you have a, a spot you want me to go to? Uh, yeah. Why don't we start at the beginning? I think that would be. Okay. Okay. It's called The Breaks. In the run up to Thanksgiving last year, you learned a whitewashed story at school about how the first peoples of this land were happy to give their sacred spaces to the consumptive force of European men in the name of civilization and progress. You came home from school and unzipped your backpack, revealing with artistic pride a picture book you had colored and stapled yourself. Your kindergarten teacher had asked you to color in a little Native American girl, then a Native American boy, followed by a pilgrim girl and boy, each one garbed in their traditional attire. I admired the craft of your book, a swell of parental pride coursing through me as I witnessed the evidence of my progeny doing and making things in the world beyond me, and I relished that you had colored all four children brown like you. 
As you flipped through the pages of your book, you narrated a sad story about how much the pilgrims had suffered when they arrived on this land. I felt a surge in my body, an immediate, unstoppable need to explain the other forms of suffering elided by this disturbingly singular narrative. I described some of the impacts of this arrival on Indigenous peoples, the European theft of their autonomies, cultures, languages, and lands. I explained that colonial practices dramatically changed how humans live in relation to this land, and I told you that this historical moment of colonial contact was crucial to understanding how we have arrived at the global ecological crisis we face today. I will never forget the way you looked at me then, your head slightly tilted to one side, your eyes wide in bewilderment. We were sitting on the landing at the top of the apartment stairs, the contents of your backpack scattered around us. This is not what my teacher told us, you said with unmistakable agitation. I knew that for the first time you were confronting the existence of conflicting worldviews, a vital gulf between your formal education and your maternal one. That's okay, I said. My job as your mother is to tell you these stories differently and to tell you other stories that don't get told at school. I pressed on to explain that history is a story based on a version of the past. Can you hear the word story in history, I asked. You nodded slowly, a little body in deep rumination. These stories need to be told from the perspectives of those who have been most damaged by history. These other stories, I said, can teach us how to keep living. From the onset of your public education, you have been learning what it means to be American through a manicured version of history that keeps European whiteness at its center. This form of education willfully forgets the lives that were destroyed, the bodies that were brutalized, and the cultures and traditions that were abolished or displaced to establish that center space. It tells you a singular and continuous narrative of Western capitalist expansion, obscuring the bleak fact that much of what we call progress has been a direct and unrelenting line to the wholesale destruction of the earth. Against this obliterating narrative, I glean from the fragments in an attempt to teach us otherwise. I scramble to harvest alternative histories omitted by the textbooks, the histories of those who have faced annihilation and lived towards survival. Learning to mother at the end of the world is an infinite toggle between wanting to make you feel safe and needing you to know that the earth and its inhabitants are facing a catastrophic crisis. This morning, you went off to school to learn discipline, to hone your reading and writing skills, to study official state history. I am at my desk sipping tea, turning over words. The birds are chirping outside my window. You, me, the birds. We are all creatures living as though we have a future, as though tomorrow will continue to resemble today. Meanwhile, plans are being devised to drive the marketplace forward when the Earth's non-renewable resources are exhausted. Scientists and businessmen are plotting to colonize the moon in a relentless drive to create an alternative human habitat when this one can no longer foster us. There is no consideration of ceasing extraction, only a maniacal mission to discover other worlds to plunder. When the earth is rendered uninhabitable, when extractive capitalism leads to wholesale ecological collapse, we will not be chosen for this new other planetary world. We, along with nearly everyone else, will be left in ecological destruction to scavenge what we can from the wreckage or to perish. The truth is, I am glad not to be among the chosen ones. I know in my body the cost of discovering new worlds the brutal violence that accompanies the colonial mission, 
No, I do not want to leave this planet. What I want is another world. And when I say another world, I mean this one, toppled and reborn. Julieta, thank you so much for your generosity and sharing your beautiful world. It's such a pleasure to hear them spoken out loud by you. It's a beautiful book. I encourage everyone listening to get it, The Breaks. It's out in September. This uh, episode will be out sometime in October, so you'll have full access to it. Julieta, thank you so much for joining us on Below the Radar. It was such a pleasure, and I, I hope we get to hang out in person in real time soon. Absolutely. You have to come to Vancouver. I would very much love to. Thanks, Sam. Thank you. Below the Radar is a Knowledge Democracy podcast created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Thanks for listening to our conversation with Julieta Singh. Learn more about Julieta's work and find links to her books in the show notes. There you can also find a link to the full transcript of this conversation. Thanks again and see you next time on Below the Radar. <laughs>